here's where we are. Um, last, uh, last week we talked about God's holiness and peace. Today, as we're working through a list of 30 attributes of God, we're nearing the end. Um, uh, let, today I want to talk about God's righteousness, justice, jealousy, and wrath. Next time, God's will. What, does, what is God's will? What do we mean by God's will? God's freedom and his omnipotence and sovereignty. I don't know if we'll get all through all those three. If we only get through one or two, then, of course, I'll just bump the one to the next, uh, next week. And then God's perfection, blessedness, beauty, and glory is the end. Now, maybe it'll take another week or two, but that's the direction we're going. Um, in all of these, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to say, what is this attribute of God? How should we understand it? And um, then how does it work out in the world? And then what's the application to our life? And in every one of these, since Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children, I'm asking, how can we imitate this attribute of God as well? Last week, we talked about how to imitate God's attribute of holiness in our own lives and God's attribute of peace in our lives. Is there peace that is characteristic of our lives? And today we're going to ask, how can we imitate God's righteousness and justice and jealousy and wrath, perhaps? So that's where we're going today. Just uh, thank you for uh, your prayers. I was at Biola uh, University in California all last week uh, for a seminar for 17 faculty members who had made application for this, and we were together about well, with lunches and everything, and it was about eight hours a day or so. Um, um, and uh, they do this every, every other year where uh, especially some newer faculty members come and they do a, a week-long seminar on how, to, how the Bible applies to their discipline. So I had uh, a chemist, a physicist, uh, somebody in history of science, uh, medieval English literature, um, mass communications, and uh, a TV film person, um, two historians, one expert in Islamic history and one in uh, Western European history. Um, let me see what else. Uh, well, you get the idea anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm missing some of these. Oh, so three psychologists, of course. You have to have psychology in a college. Um, and uh, a couple of people are teaching theology or philosophy. And uh, so I taught on the doctrine of scripture, and then uh, how to interpret the Bible, and uh, then uh, as a test case on how the Bible applies to secular or to academic disciplines, talked about uh, the Bible and economics, some of the stuff I'd gone through with this class quite a while ago. And then uh, the last day, they talked about their paper proposals, and we interacted over what they're going to do. They have to write papers, and then I get them in a month or so. It was really fun. And God is just blessing Biola. I know some of you have children who have gone there, or grandchildren who have gone there, and uh, uh, there's an excitement on campus. And uh, So thank you. I think uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Just the, it was a, a great, uh, great a, a really fun situation to be in with lots of ideas all, all week long. And uh, um, it, was, it was good, so thanks for your prayers. Okay, um, one more thing. I just thought from time to time I would say something. Pam, uh, Palma Horsley, are you here? Can you stand up? Palma has a prayer list for this class that comes out by email. How many of you get those already? Okay, some of you. How many of you would like to get those? Okay, would you write your name and email address on a piece of paper? And Palma, could you stand up again? She's got this bright green jacket on this morning. Um, is this, um, can, can, can you kind of be, in, be right back there at the end and people could give that to her? Or if you want to get up while I'm talking and just give her a little note saying, please put me on the prayer list. This is such an important part of the class and I'm just thankful that Palma is doing this and these come out once or twice a week and here's a prayer update for the class and it's really important. Um, so I just wanted to thank you for doing that and say, hey, other people want to be on that list, um, give her your email address. It comes out by email. Is there a way to get it if you're not on email, if people don't have email? You call, okay. Sometimes, I mean, I wonder about a fax, but, but that's more work. So at least email. If, you're, if you don't have email, talk to somebody who has email. Okay. Then um, Connie Parker, where are you? Is Connie here this morning? Connie, 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 Connie. Connie's not here. 
Okay. Uh, Connie does tapes and CDs of the classes, and I, since I don't give handouts, you don't notice that. But if you want tapes or CDs of this class, uh, see Connie or talk to her. All right? God's righteousness and justice. Two different words in English, righteousness and justice. But uh, there's a little trouble here because uh, these two words in English, righteousness and justice, which are kind of really, they look different, they're spelled differently and everything, they translate uh, the same word in Hebrew and, and they translate the same word in Greek often, not, not entirely, but, but often uh, they translate the Hebrew word tzedek and its uh, related words and often uh, the Greek word uh, dikaios and its related words, uh, righteous or just, and therefore I will treat them as almost synonyms. However, when I got thinking about this, we don't use them quite synonymously in English. Righteousness is used more to emphasize an in, a person's internal character. We say that's a righteous person. And justice is used more to speak of fairness in one's dealing with others. And there may be some sense of that distinction in the way English translations have chosen one or the other, but in my mind, they're very close, uh, almost synonyms. So God's righteousness or justice we're treating as one attribute. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Um, so Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Yeah, everything he does is just and in fact in his character, he is just and upright. Here's, uh, this is the tzedek word group and here's another, uh, uh, another Hebrew word has a similar idea uh, to mean be, be upright. But uh, God... He acts in accordance with what is right. He's the final standard of what is right. And Abraham, when dealing with, uh, it, when talking back and forth with God about judgment coming on Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And here the idea, Abraham appeals to God and uh, the idea is that uh, God agrees with this, that his actions are always just and righteous. And that also works itself out in the fact that in general, God speaks and commands what is right. The precepts of the Lord are right. They're not, when we, when we read the Bible, we're not getting unjust, unfair, unrighteous commands. We're getting just and good and righteous commands. Uh, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That is, our response to God's commands ought to be that we have joy in them. We say, wow, that is really good that God commands us not to steal and not to lie and not to murder, not to commit adultery, honor our father and mother, or all the other commands of Scripture, those are good things, and when we ponder them, they should give us joy. They rejoice our hearts. They cause our hearts to rejoice. Um, I, the Lord, speak the truth. Or actually, although almost all English translations translate that with truth, um, when I looked at it yesterday, I realized it's the Hebrew word uh, tzedek, I the, word, I the Lord speak righteousness, I and then here I declare what is right. But in any case, the second half of it, I declare what is right, God's words tell us what is right. So we should never think that God, something God commands is wrong or something he does is unjust or unfair. That's the payoff for God's justice, that what he does is right. It's fair, it's just. And we shouldn't ever think, God, you weren't fair. This, you weren't fair in this, or you weren't righteous in that. Because God is righteous, it is necessary for God to treat people as they deserve. To treat people as they deserve. That is what's fair. That is what is just. Um, it's like if I get uh, final exams. <clears throat> And uh, some of these exams show that students had studied and they knew almost everything. I'll give them an A. If they knew, uh, if they knew a whole lot, I'll give them a B. But if an exam shows that a student hadn't, hadn't really studied or learned much of anything in the class and just, just tons of wrong answers, that, that student's going to get it out. Now, if I would just close my eyes and give everybody an A, even the students who had failed the test, would that be fair? No, the student 
you know, students who worked really hard would say, why are you giving an, why are you giving an A to this F student who didn't show up, didn't study? <clears throat> Got all the answers wrong? Say, oh, well, I like everybody. I'll give everybody an A. That's not fair. Fair is giving people what they deserve on their test, giving people what they have earned on their test. And so, by analogy, uh, if God is just, then he has to be exactly fair in uh, in what he does and how he treats people. Um, actually, it doesn't always work out, but my goal in grading is to tell students what I expect, and then when they get their grade back, they should say, that's fair. Um, Sandy, you're same idea. Now, students sometimes have an inflated idea of their own abilities, and so they may not think it's... But, it, but in general, once they see it, once they see where they stand in respect to the rest of the class, and I give out a distribution curve, they should say, you know, okay, that's fair. That was what I deserved. And a lot of times, students will say that. Even if they get a B or a C instead of an A, they'll say it was fair. And so um, if our, our judgment mechanism in our hearts is working rightly, once we see how God responds to each individual... Uh, there ought to be something in us that says that's fair. Well, but that means that if people are sinful and break God's laws, it is necessary that God punish sin because sin deserves punishment, not reward. And here we get to the heart of the cause of Jesus coming to die for our sins. Romans 3 has this statement. It talks about Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now that word propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath. God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood, or his death, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So you think back, go way back in the Old Testament, Abraham sinned, but God forgave him. Uh, um, actually, uh, Abel sinned, and God forgave him. Noah, Noah um, no doubt Noah and his family weren't entirely righteous, although they were righteous compared to the rest of the generation. But uh, there were people whom God had forgiven, Abraham and Sarah and um, um, Isaac and Jacob and um, Joseph and... Moses and David and Solomon, these people, these people had sinned, but they still were had access to God, had a relationship with God. And someone might say, wait a minute, that's like giving an A to an F student. How can you forgive these people, God, if your standard is absolute perfection? How can you forgive these people in the Old Testament who had sinned? In his forbearance, he had passed over former sins. But then, Paul says, when God put forward Christ as a, as a sacrifice to bear God's wrath, it was to show God's righteousness. People sinned, God forgave them. People sinned, God forgave them. Sin, forgive, forgive. People could look at that and say, wait, God, you're not just. You're not fair. You're forgiving sinners. They don't deserve that. Where's the punishment for sin? And for these thousands of years, it's waiting, it's waiting, it's waiting. And then Christ comes and bears God's wrath against sin and now it becomes clear, oh, it is fair. God was just storing up the punishment, waiting until the Messiah would come, and the punishment that Abraham and Moses all deserved, that was put on Christ. So it shows that God is righteous. It shows that he can't just say, oh, you sin. Okay, that's fine. Forget it. I forgive you anyway. God can't forgive people unless there's a payment for sin, a payment so, so the propitiation bears God's wrath, and this shows God's righteousness. Because he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, that is, he punishes sin, but also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He declares us righteous. So uh, that, this idea of God's justice is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's the heart of the gospel message. Then, um, as we evaluate good and evil in the world, in the events of the world, how can we know what ought to happen? How can we know what is right? And here, the secular world is without much guidance. A non-Christian world, having in many cases just abandoned the idea of moral right and wrong, 
doesn't have much of a clue as to how you can say that lying is wrong or telling the truth is right, that stealing is wrong, you know, uh, that a murder is wrong or adultery is wrong. The, the, the secular world doesn't know where it can get moral standards that are good and right, but we do. We have moral standards in the Bible, so whatever conforms to God's moral character is right. He's a truth-telling God. Therefore, it's right to tell the truth and not lie. He's a God who is faithful to his covenant promises. Therefore, we should be faithful in our marriages and not commit adultery, not be unfaithful, because we are conforming to God's moral character as we are, fi we, as we are faithful. So God's character is the standard of what it means to be righteous and just. Now, Sometimes there are hard questions. Sometimes there are hard questions about how we understand that God can be fair and yet some things happen in the world that happen, or even in the Bible. How can this be? Sometimes the Bible stops trying to explain to our satisfaction how God can be just and just tells us that he is the creator and we are the creatures. And so Paul in Romans 9, talking about how God chose someone to be, chose Jacob but not Esau, chose the people of Israel but not Pharaoh. And then he says, and he knows that his readers are following this argument, and then he says, Romans 9, 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul doesn't answer how that can be. He says, Simply, but who are you, a man, to answer back to God? I think it's right that we search through the Bible, we ponder, we ask, we think, we try to understand what God is doing, try to understand how it can be fair, but there has to be a point, I think, when we let it rest. And we'll get to the point where we talk about God's sovereignty over the world and God's involvement in evil and yet our responsibility, and, and God, that he doesn't sin, but how can evil come to pass? We can understand a lot about that, but there is going to be a point, because we are finite, there is going to be a point where we say, there's mystery here. There's, 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 there's material that I cannot understand, and then we need to shut our mouths and be silent and say, God is the creator, and we are the creatures. God is just, and we are not. Who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Paul, I mean, he, he basically stops and doesn't answer the question anymore except to say God is the creator and he is still just. Now that's the whole argument, the whole question in the book of Job where God allowed Satan to intervene and to take Job's ten children and all his livestock and even his physical health. And Job is tempted to curse God and die, to say that God is unjust, to say that God is wrong. Um, and ultimately he doesn't do that, but he comes close to it and he's questioning God. And then God appears and says this kind of thing. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Will you even put me in the wrong, Job? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? And back a couple of chapters, similar kind of statement. Job, God asks Job these questions again and again. And you think, you just picture yourself, if you're Job and God is asking you these questions. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you caused the dawn to know its place? What are you going to say? <laughs> Frankly, no, I haven't. Okay, no. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Do you give to the horse its might, his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? And they're on and on. God goes asking these questions. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? 
I lay my hand on my mouth. Job is silent before God's might. So ultimately, there's a point at which we have to say God is just even when we don't understand exactly how that can be. Ultimately, I think that's a comforting thought. If we had an evil God, that would be a very troubling thought. But we have a good God. And we know he's good from all his works in history and his statements in the Bible. And since he is good and powerful, it's a comforting thought. Well, now, what do we say by way of application to our lives for this doctrine of God's righteousness? Well, I think first, first, when we reflect on the fact that we are creatures and God is righteous and just, we should be thankful that God is always, everywhere, righteous and just and fair. It's another reason to praise him. I talked about God's holiness as a reason to praise him, his goodness as a reason to praise him, and now his justice and righteousness are reasons to praise him. And this gives us peace when thinking about the future and thinking about final judgment. It will be fair. It will be fair. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Revelation 16.5, it's talking about these bowls of God's wrath poured out on the earth, and the angel who looks on, I, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Is it, it is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, God, the Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We are going to say that on the last day as well. We may not be able to perceive that as clearly now, and things are clouded to some extent now, but when we see God's judgments on the last day, and when our hearts are freed from sin, and when our eyes see more clearly what is really in people's hearts and in the events of the world, we're going to say, Lord, your judgments are just. Your judgments are just. It's a sobering thought, but it's also a thought, I think, that gives peace to our hearts. God's righteousness and justice also guarantee the outcome of history. You open the, I looked at the Arizona paper this morning and it's bad news, bad news, bad news. And I thought, I don't need this. <laughs> but we can get our hearts so troubled we think, man, is anything ever going to turn out right? Yes, it is. In the course of the history of the world, evil will not triumph. Evil will not triumph. God is going to triumph. And we see at the end of this seven sets, this one set of seven judgments in the book of Revelation, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's Handel took this for the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah! The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's joy in Handel's presentation of this because we rejoice that God is going to reign and the kingdoms of the world will be governed by Jesus Christ in a just and holy and righteous rule forever. We look forward to that. We look forward to a kingdom in which righteousness dwells. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the ultimate kingdom that we'll belong to, but he's going to rule over this earth, and things are going to come out right. That also gives me peace. There can be tumult and turmoil and hardship and sadness in the intervening time, but ultimately, evil is not going to triumph. Number three, someday the justice of God, the righteousness of God, reminds us that someday a just God will rightly and fairly settle all accounts. Now, Paul, here in uh, writing to Col the Colossian church, is writing to slaves and masters. Um, that was the most common employment situation. I don't know that the word slave is the best translation. I would prefer bondservant, but I lost on the translation committee vote on that word. And so, by about seven to five, something like that. But anyway, it's close. 
I shouldn't even deter, deter you by bringing in that little sideline. Um, but we got a, 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 sir, a footnote that says Greek bondservant. It, it was uh, people that, that couldn't change employee, employers, but, uh, but they had a lot of rights. But anyway, in some cases, if you were a slave or a bondservant in the first century, things went wrong. You were accused of wrongdoing, and you got punished for it, and you were, and it, you were innocent, but it wasn't fair. All right? Or you did something good for your master and somebody else took credit and you didn't get the credit. It wasn't fair. And there wasn't anything you could do about it because you couldn't change employers and you didn't want to make the situation worse by complaining. Actually, that happens from time to time today, doesn't it? In a job situation where you get a bad review or, or you get passed over for promotion, you say it's not fair, or you get accused of doing something. And, and you get blamed for doing something you didn't do, or you don't get credit for something you did do. And so in a way, we're kind of in that situation ourselves, where sometimes things just aren't fair, and you say, it's not worth the trouble to make it right, but it wasn't right. And maybe you remember some things in your life that weren't fair, where somebody didn't treat you fairly, and it never got resolved. And there's kind of that lingering sense of, oh, you know, that was, that was just a bad deal. And maybe it's 10 years ago, maybe it's 30 years ago, but you say, that wasn't fair. Paul writes to servants or slaves in that situation saying, slaves, obey in everything your earthly masters. Whatever you do, verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And then he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So if you've suffered wrongly, he says to these slaves or bondservants, if you've suffered wrongly, um, God's going to take care of it eventually. And the person who did the wrong will be called to account. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. But there's another reason Paul says this to these slaves. And that is, that why? Not, not only, they might have been punished for wrongdoing, but what, might, what other situation might they be tempted to think they could get away with something? They could steal? Nobody would know. They could mistreat their fellow slate, and nobody would know. And Paul says, wait a minute. Don't think that ultimately you're going to get away with anything because God's going to settle all accounts, and he's just. And the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So work as serving the Lord, because you are serving him. So be faithful, okay? Then Paul turns, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And I think he's hinting at them that they should look at the previous verse too. You mistreat your employees, God's going to remember. Treat them fairly because God's going to be just, and he will settle all accounts. Now, to my mind, that's encouraging too, because if there have been situations where you have not been treated fairly, and it's way in the past and you can't undo it, God knows he'll make it right in the end. You like that? But if there are situations where you've defrauded somebody, or you've stolen something, or you haven't made it right, I suggest that you make it right now rather than waiting till final judgment and being really embarrassed about it. Won't keep you out of heaven, but it could impact your heavenly reward. And it could impact God's blessing on you in this life. God is just, He is fair. All right? Number four. God's justice is the invisible cause behind many events in this world where, did you ever hear people say this, what goes around comes around? Somebody has just been a jerk. Somehow you say, oh man, you kind of just smile, you say, he got just what he deserved because that's how he's been treating others for a long, did you ever, alright, and sometimes you wonder how that happens. Or, you do good, and it's invisible, and nobody knows about it, and you say, well, okay, I just leave that with the Lord. But sometimes God's going to reward you in surprising ways, too. So I think what's happening is there is God's providential oversight of the events of the world where a lot of times you're honest, you're truthful, you act with integrity toward your neighbors, toward people. 
business. And all of a sudden you th- see that thing God just seems to bless. All right? And I think that God's justice, not, not always 100% in this life, because sometimes it doesn't happen until final judgment, but many times when we act in a way that honors God, then he honors us in return. Him who honors me, I will honor, he says. Um, or where people eventually receive what they deserve in a surprising turn of events. And I think Peter gives us warrant for thinking this when he says to Christians, to Christians, it's an interesting verse, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're calling on him as father, right? What is Paul or Peter saying about this one that we call Father? We're saying he's a just Father. He's one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Impartially means doesn't show favoritism. So if you embezzled a little bit from your employer, which I, I hope nobody in here would do, but if, if somebody did, and claimed to be a Christian, or you cheated a little bit on how you build somebody and claim to be a Christian, or you made a promise and you didn't fulfill it and claim to be a Christian, God sees. He's the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. He sees. And Peter says, if this is the one that you call on his father, if he's the father who judges, who continually judges, who's always judging, evaluating impartially, without favoritism, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's saying this to Christians. I don't think this means fear of hell. I don't think this means fear of final judgment. I think it does mean fear of God's discipline in your life and his hand of favor, his hand of blessing, his hand of um, grace or mercy being withdrawn. And there will be consequences. God's justice means he is fair and we ought to act fairly toward others. Number five, God has set up civil government to administer his justice in some events in this life without waiting for providential intervention or final judgment. That is, sometimes there are things that do wrong and we are to go to civil government and entrust the civil government to make it right. And I see a number of you in here who work in law enforcement. I see Monty over here and uh, I see Mike over here and some others. Clay, is Clay here? But... um, uh, Civil government does this. Paul says, don't take personal vengeance. Somebody does wrong to you. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. And I put this Greek word up here, ekdekuntas, participle. It's related to the word dikaiao, to justify, dikaios, just. Um, don't take justice out for yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God for his written vengeance, that is, just repayment is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So it's really related to God's justice. So don't try to, you know, somebody uh, robs from you, don't try to rob from him in return, that kind of thing. Don't try to take vengeance yourself. But then just a few verses later, he talks about the civil government and somebody who's working for civil government. He is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Ek dikos, that is, one who extracts what is just from the wrongdoer. And I'll tell you, I'm preparing this lesson, and I'm thinking in my mind, somebody over in Iraq experienced that just last week, and that is this horribly evil man, Zarqawi, who had beheaded people on videotape just to glory in the evil that he was doing, and... The civil government, that is, the military power of the United States in the form of a bomb from an airplane, was God's servant for our good, executing judgment on the wrongdoer. He carried out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Fidel Castro, I saw in the uh, uh, news headline yesterday, Fidel Castro said, we are murderers, murdering Zarqawi. No, we're carrying out God's justice, and that's, and that's, that's, um, that's something that God has authorized civil government to do internally with police, externally with military to protect us from the wrongdoers. And so civil government, in executing justice on the wrongdoer, is carrying out God's justice. Um, and I think that's good. That, that's a blessing that God has given in our lives. This is a solemn responsibility for governments to execute justice because they have great power. 
Therefore, it is important for civil governments to act justly and to enforce justice. And when governments don't, there is great evil and suffering. Government has power, but if you get an evil government with power over people, as you get in North Korea, for instance, today, um, and, and uh, surely in Cuba as well, and a number of other totalitarian countries, an evil government brings great evil and suffering. So God says to earthly rulers in Psalm 82, to how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Who are these? These are the people who need the government. They need the courts. They need the police to protect them because they don't have the power to protect themselves, especially the weak and fatherless. Give justice to them. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Government protects fairness and justice in the world when it's functioning rightly. That's what it's supposed to do. But if it's showing partiality and judging unjustly, then it's failing in its purpose. And Amos is harsh in his condemnation of civil government or the society leaders and the powerful in society generally when they are distorting justice. Oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. The gate was where cases were heard. That was the courts. Establish justice in the gate and where transactions were done, business transactions. They should be fair. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of, the Lord of God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies or your prayer meetings or your Bible studies or your worship assemblies. We could add. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos is saying when people were cheating one another in their business transactions, when they were taking bribes, when they weren't executing justice in their judgments in the courts, when the powerful were oppressing the weak, then he's saying, I'm hating your church meetings because your hearts are not right. There's not justice in your life. So we have... We had, there, was a, there was a situation of church discipline that came before the elder board six months ago where someone had defrauded someone else in a business transaction and there had been counseling, there had been approach, and finally the, the elder board passed a, a resolution um, excluding the person from the fellowship of the church because of defrauding someone in a business transaction, not making it right. I'm glad that happened because we should be different from the world. We should not be a people who cheat or defraud, or go back on their word. Do not practice justice in our everyday dealings with others. That means if somebody gives you too much change at the cash register, you go back and make it right. Okay? Do justice. That's God's justice. Number six, the assurance of God's justice enables us to forgive others freely, knowing that God will make everything fair and right in the end. Oh, this is something else. Someone does wrong to you, and there isn't any, it, just for some reason, it isn't a big enough deal to make a, to go to the police about it, or just, you, you just, you can't, you can't make it right, but it's been wrong. Or someone just kind of being irritating and mean to you in a work situation or a family situation or what. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you've been called because someone has gone before us and established a pattern. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. What did he do? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten and this is talking about his suffering leading up to his death on the cross, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Um, again, uh, dikaios, uh, the adverb, there's justice here. And God is the one who judges justly. I think when Jesus was suffering and being beaten and, and mocked and, and physically harmed at the time before his crucifixion, Peter is saying here, here's the secret for how he endured it. 
he kept saying, Lord, I trust that to you. I give that to you. I trust that to you. And while he was doing that, that enabled him to say, also, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But by saying, I give that to you, he was saying, Lord, I know that you one day will make this right. You will make this right. And either you will bring these people to account at final judgment, and they'll pay the penalty for what they're doing, or, or they will come to gain forgiveness through what Christ had done. And then the punishment will have been taken by Christ on the cross. And for us, when someone does us wrong, we can say, Lord, will you take care of that? We entrust, actually the word himself, it, it just he continued entrusting to him who judges justly. Yes, himself, but I think the whole situation. So we can say, Lord, I give that to you. Will you make it? I release it. I don't cling to any desire to execute revenge or vengeance on anybody else. I don't cling to any desire to harm in return for being harmed. I release it to you, Lord, and I know that you will take care of it. And you are just, you will settle all accounts. And Lord, either that person who did me wrong will pay for it at the final judgment, or perhaps even now in this life, there'll be something that happens. Or else, Lord, we'll find that the punishment has been taken by Jesus on the cross, and that person will come to know forgiveness. Lord, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So then we can imitate Christ as well in praying for forgiveness for the one who does us wrong. But, there, but that is different from saying, somebody hurt me and I hope he gets away with it forever. There is in our hearts, in our consciences, a, a sense of justice that's God-given that just says, that isn't right. I can't do, it's something unfair about that. Do you see, am I making sense? Is this, is this getting through? Uh, and and I, I don't know how, how non-Christians can really... The, 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 just squelch that sense of unfairness and justice, say, okay, I forgive you anyway. I think we can forgive because the punishment has been taken by Jesus or it will be meted out in final judgment, and that gives us freedom that we can forgive, but justice will be done. Number seven, imitation of God's righteousness. We should be just and fair in our dealings with others. Business transactions. There are, I just, I'm just trying to think of application here, all right? And you have people come and work at your house or do something, there are some things that are legal, but they are still not right. And I didn't think of any example, but you, you probably are thinking of some examples. Not. Um, but we should do what is right. In lawsuits and in the courts, our goal should be that decisions are right and fair and just, not merely for our side to win. We should want what is fair. And you know what? I think in sports events... <laughs> Maybe I'm meddling here. Um, I think our decision should be that the that the umpire calls the balls and strikes fairly. And if the guy was out, if the runner was out at first base, he should be out, even if he's our runner, even if it's the bottom of the ninth, even if the World Series, we should say we're not going to argue and try to say he was safe when he was out. What we want is fair. Decisions should be just and fair. And dealing with our children, in dealing with students, if you're a teacher, in dealing with employees, if you're an employer, we should be fair. We should be just and imitate God's righteousness. So, here's the end. I know some of this is strong medicine, but isn't God's righteousness a wonderful attribute? Isn't it really? Doesn't it give you a sense of peace that all is going to be made right in the universe in the end? Comment, question, before I go on to something else. Gene? Yep. Yep. That has the... Uh, you know, part of the Lord's Prayer is, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I guess that point being so important that it was highlighted in the prayer. Yeah, okay. The idea of forgiveness. Good. Right in the Lord's Prayer, so it's important. Anything else? Yeah, yeah Frank. God knows Abraham's is right. He, go ahead. So my question is, with God's judgment, wrath, and there follows punishment, does that only apply... I, God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. Right. He sees the blood of Jesus covers me. Yeah. So is judgment only for the heathen or the non-Christian? Yes, good question. I think if, I'm glad you asked that because I thought it was kind of, I touched on it, but maybe it wasn't clear. If we do wrong, 
and then we trust in Christ, there's forgiveness. So there's no eternal punishment for us. It's all gone. We have no fear of eternal punishment. So all the past is forgiven, and we're thankful for that. But the reason God can do that is that somebody else took the punishment for us. So the accounts are settled. Okay? Now, does God's fatherly discipline work out in our lives? Yes, yes, too. But it's, it's to make us better. It's to do us good. It's not to harm us. Okay. Okay. Righteousness and justice. Okay. Name over here. Rosemary. I was wondering, is that punishment now, or will there also be a punishment later on, or a judgment? I think it's both. Is there punishment now or later on? I think it's both. Now, for, 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 for Christians, God forgives us. And so there's no final punishment later. That We don't ever have to fear about that, the final judgment. Are there some consequences in this life? Yeah, Chuck Colson became a Christian, but he still had to go to prison for the wrong that he did when he was the advisor to the president. Uh, president. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there are some consequences that work out in this life. And... When we do wrong in this life, um, we pray for God's forgiveness. And so, sometimes he gives grace. But, you know, David sinned with Bathsheba, and there was consequence in his life. His kingdom was never the same. So I don't want to say it's, it's just, I can, I can see it and it doesn't make any difference. I never think the Bible says that, Christians or non-Christians. There is a difference. There's grace. Final judgment is not uh, a threat for us. But, uh, but there can be loss of blessing in this life for sure. But there's grace, too. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Okay. This is strong medicine. I don't want it to overcome the grace. But I'm afraid, I'm, but I'm trying to correct an imbalance where, well, number one, this is the attribute I'm talking about this morning. And number two, there's kind of a mistake in the Christian world. Smile, God loves everybody no matter what you do. And it's just too simplistic. It's, it's more complicated than that. Okay, anything else? Yep, right over here. Uh, I, I think... We should never delight when people uh, actually get what they deserve, which is a human tendency because God is just, but we are called to love our brother. So we shouldn't delight in other people's downfall, if you will. Yeah, Mike. Okay, I'm going to be honest about that. I'm not sure that I've got exactly what I want to say in my mind right now, okay? I was happy when Zarkawa was killed. Okay, he was just so evil, and he was doing evil to everybody else. I have a friend who was in a class at Trinity Seminary. I was talking about civil government one time. He raised his hand and he said, I had a good friend who was murdered in Detroit. And I went to the trial of the guy who murdered him. And this student said, when the sentence was announced... I suppose it was life in prison. When the sentence was announced, he said, I was happy. I don't know that that was wrong. That murderer was getting what he deserved. Now, would it be right to pray that God would forgive him, to seek that he'd come to know Christ? Would there be even more joy in that? Yes. But I think also in reflection of God's justice, there is something in our hearts that says it's right. When, when people get what they deserve. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Say well, it again, Mike. There's a difference between right and delight. Okay, you're getting at something that I appreciate here. There's a difference between right and what is... Yes, I... Yes, okay, good. I, um, in The Wizard of Oz, ding dong, the witch is dead. <laughs> Okay, witch, oh witch, the wicked witch. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. And I, I had that starting to go through my mind about Zarkawi. <laughs> but then it didn't seem quite right to me. Okay, so I'm, I'm, there's a, some kind of peaceful gladness that justice has been done, and he's not going to behead any more people, but I can't quite gloat over it. So, so what you're saying is really good. I, I just I appreciate that. There's, there's, we don't want to go beyond that. So, okay, yeah. Well, it's Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Okay. 
Hmm. That's a hard. That's a hard question. It's a good question. Yeah. What here? What are the consequences of using grace and mercy as a crutch uh, in this life and the thereafter as we come to understand what is expected of us, God's righteousness? Yeah. Uh, what are the consequences now and later? Grace, we don't have a demand on it. We can ask. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have grace. But, but you know, when we do wrong... I, um, we should try to make it right. And if we've, if we've lied to someone, we need to go back and make it right. If we've defrauded someone. My dad was part owner of a business in Wisconsin for many years. And every once in a while, once or twice it happened, he'd get an envelope with $100 or $200 in it saying, I worked at your creamery 20 years ago and I stole a bunch of butter. And now I'm paying for it. That made my dad really happy, and I was really happy because God is working in the guy's conscience, and he wanted to repay it and make it right. So uh, I don't want to just skip through life and say, grace, 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 doesn't matter what I do. That's not the Bible. It's conduct yourselves. With, if, you, if you call on the one as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I don't think that's fear of hell. I don't think that's fear of final judgment. But it is fear of God's discipline in this life, and we should try to make things right. I'm out of time. We're going to go to... Well, next week, we're going to do God's jealousy and God's wrath. If this one is hard, wait till we think we wait till you talk about jealousy and wrath. But we need to do these. Let me pray, and then Bob has one final announcement. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God of justice and that you are fair and that you do what is right that your commands are right and just and good, and that you command us to be just and fair, Lord. And we want it that way. We wouldn't want it any other way. We thank you that you are such an excellent God. Forgive our sins. Have mercy on us, Lord. Renew your delight in us as a father who delights in his children. But correct us when we go wrong. Help us to grow in righteousness and justice in our own lives. Amen.